Mr. Whistler's Ten O'Clock by James Abbott McNeil Whistler. Delivered in London, February 20th, 1885, at Cambridge, March 24th, at Oxford, April 30th. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. An excerpt from The Gentle Art of Making Enemies as pleasingly exemplified in many instances wherein the serious ones of this earth carefully exasperated have been prettily spurred on to unseemliness and indiscretion while overcome by undue sense of right ladies and gentlemen it is with great hesitation and much misgiving that i appear before you in the character of the preacher if timidity be at all allied to the virtue modesty and can find favor in your eyes i pray you for the sake of that virtue accord me your utmost indulgence i would plead for my want of habit did it not seem preposterous judging from precedent that aught save the most efficient effrontery could be ever expected in connection with my subject for I will not conceal from you that I mean to talk about art. Yes, art, that has of late become, as far as much discussion and writing can make it, a sort of common topic for the tea-table. Art is upon the town to be chucked under the chin by the passing gallant, to be enticed within the gates of the householder to be coaxed into company as a proof of culture and refinement if familiarity can breed contempt certainly art or what is currently taken for it has been brought to its lowest stage of intimacy the people have been harassed with art in every guise and vexed with many methods as to its endurance they have been told how they shall love art and live with it their homes have been invaded their walls covered with paper their very dress taken to task until roused at last bewildered and filled with the doubts and discomforts of senseless suggestion they resent such intrusion and cast forth the false prophets who have brought the very name of the beautiful into disrepute and derision upon themselves alas ladies and gentlemen art has been maligned she has not in common with such practices she is a goddess of dainty thought reticent of habit abjuring all obtrusiveness purposing in no way to better others she is withal selfishly occupied with her own perfection only having no desire to teach seeking and finding the beautiful in all conditions and in all times as did her high priest rembrandt when he saw picturesque grandeur and noble dignity in the jews quarter of amsterdam and lamented not that its inhabitants were not greeks as did tintoret and paul veronese among the venetians while not halting to change the brocaded silks for the classic draperies of athens as did at the court of philip velasquez whose infantas clad in inesthetic hoops are as works of art of the same quality of the elgin marbles no reformers were these great men no improvers of the way of others their productions alone were their occupation and filled with the poetry of their science they required not to alter their surroundings for 
as the laws of their art were revealed to them they saw in the development of their work that real beauty which to them was much a matter of certainty and triumph as is to the astronomer the verification of the result foreseen with the light given to them alone in all this their world was completely severed from that of their fellow-creatures with whom sentiment is mistaken for poetry and for whom there is no perfect work that shall not be explained by the benefit conferred upon themselves humanity takes the place of art and god's creations are excused by their usefulness beauty is confounded with virtue and before a work of art it is asked what good shall it do hence it is that nobility of action in this life is hopelessly linked with the merit of the work that portrays it and thus the people have acquired the habit of looking as who should say not at a picture but through it at some human fact that shall or shall not from a social point of view better their mental or moral state so we have come to hear of the painting that elevates and of the duty of the painter of the painter that is full of thought and of the panel that merely decorates a favorite faith dear to those who teach is that certain periods were especially artistic and that nations readily named were notably lovers of art so we are told that the greeks were as a people worshippers of the beautiful and that in the fifteenth century art was ingrained in the multitude that the great masters lived in common understanding with their patrons that the early italians were artists all and that the demand for the lovely thing produced it that we of to-day in gross contrast to this arcadian purity call for the ungainly and obtain the ugly that could we but change our habits and climate were we willing to wander in groves could we be roasted out of broadcloth were we to do without haste and journey without speed we should again require the spoon of queen anne and pick at our peas with the fork of two prongs and so for the flock little hamlets grow near hammersmith and the steam horse is scorned useless quite hopeless and false in the effort built upon fable and all because a wise man has uttered a vain thing and filled his belly with the east wind listen there never was an artistic period there never was an art-loving nation in the beginning man went forth each day some to do battle some to the chase others again to dig to the delve in the field all that they might gain and live or lose and die until there was found among them one differing from the rest whose pursuits attracted him not and so he stayed by the tents with the women and traced strange devices with a burnt stick upon the gourd this man who took no joy in the ways of his brethren who cared not for conquest and fretted in the field this designer of quaint patterns this deviser of the beautiful who perceived in nature about him curious curvings as faces are seen in the fire this dreamer apart was the first artist and when from the field and from afar there came back the people they took the gourd and drank from out of it and presently there came to this man another and in time others of like nature chosen by the gods and so they worked together and soon they 
fashioned from the moistened earth forms resembling the gourd and with the power of creation the heirloom of the artist presently they went beyond the slovenly suggestion of nature and the first vase was born in beautiful proportion and the toilers tilled and were athirst and the heroes returned from fresh victories to rejoice and to feast and all drank alike from the artist's goblets fashioned cunningly taking no note the while of the craftsman's pride and understanding not his glory in his work drinking at the cup not from choice not from consciousness that it was beautiful but because forsooth there was none other and time with more state brought more capacity for luxury and it became well that men should dwell in large houses and rest upon couches and eat at tables whereupon the artist with his artificers built palaces and filled them with furniture beautiful in proportion and lovely to look upon and the people lived in marvels of art and ate and drank out of masterpieces for there was nothing else to eat and to drink out of and no bad building to live in no article of daily life of luxury or of necessity that had not been handed down from the design of the master and made by his workmen so greece was in its splendor and art reigned supreme by force of fact not by election and there was no meddling from the outsider the mighty warrior would no more have ventured to offer a design for the temple of pallas athene than would the sacred poet have proffered a plan for constructing the catapult and the amateur was unknown and the dilettante undreamed of and history wrote on and conquest accompanied civilization and art spread or rather its products were carried by the victors among the vanquished from one country to another and the customs of cultivation covered the face of the earth so that all people continued to use what the artist alone produced and centuries passed in this using and the world was flooded with all that was beautiful until there rose a new class who discovered the cheap and foresaw fortune in the facture of the sham then sprang into existence the tawdry the common the gee-gaw the taste of the tradesman supplanted the science of the artist and what was born of the million went back to them and charmed them for it was after their own heart and the great and the small the statesman and the slave took to themselves the abomination that was tendered and preferred it and have lived with it ever since and the artist's occupation was gone and the manufacturer and the huckster took his place and now the heroes filled from the jugs and drank from the bowls with understanding noting the glare of their new bravery and taking pride in its worth and the people this time had much to say in the matter and all were satisfied and birmingham and manchester arose in their might and art was relegated to the curiosity shop nature contains the elements in color and form of all pictures as the keyboard contains the notes of all music but the artist is born to pick and choose and group with science these elements that the result may be beautiful as the musician gathers his notes and forms his chords until he bring forth from chaos glorious harmony to say to the painter that nature is to be taken as she is is to say to the player that he may sit on the piano that nature is always right 
is an assertion artistically as untrue as it is one whose truth is universally taken for granted. Nature is very rarely right, to such an extent even, that it might almost be said that nature is usually wrong. That is to say, the condition of things that shall bring about the perfection of harmony worthy a picture is rare, and not common at all. This would seem to even the most intelligent a doctrine almost blasphemous, so incorporated with our education has the supposed aphorism become, that its belief is held to be part of our moral being, and the words themselves have in our ear the ring of religion. Still seldom does nature succeed in producing a picture. The sun blares, the wind blows from the east, the sky is bereft of cloud, and without all is of iron. The windows of the Crystal Palace are seen from all points of London. The holiday-maker rejoices in the glorious day, and the painter turns aside to shut his eyes. How little this is understood, and how dutifully the casual in nature is accepted as sublime, may be gathered from the unlimited admiration daily produced by a very foolish sunset. The dignity of the snow-capped mountain is lost in distinctness, but the joy of the tourist is to recognize the traveler on the top. The desire to see, for the sake of seeing, is, with the mass, alone the one to be gratified, hence the delight in detail. And when the evening mist closes the riverside with poetry, as with a veil, and the poor buildings lose themselves in the dim sky, and the tall chimneys become campanili, and the warehouses are palaces in the night, and the whole city hangs in the heavens, and fairyland is before us, then the wayfarer hastens home, the working man and the cultured one, the wise man and the one of pleasure cease to understand, as they have ceased to see, and nature, who for once has sung in tune, sings her exquisite song to the artist alone, her son and her master, her son and that he loves her, her master and that he knows her. To him her secrets are unfolded, to him her lessons have become gradually clear. He looks at her flower, not with the enlarging lens that he may gather facts for the botanist, but with the light of the one who sees in her choice selection of brilliant tones and delicate tints suggestions of future harmonies. He does not confine himself to purposeless copying without thought, each blade of grass as commended by the inconsequent, but in the long curve of the narrow leaf corrected by the straight tall stem, he learns how grace is wedded to dignity, how strength enhances sweetness, that elegance shall be the result. In the citron wing of the pale butterfly, with its dainty spots of orange, he sees before him the stately halls of fair gold with their slender saffron pillars, and is taught how the delicate drawing high upon the walls shall be traced in tender tones of opperment, and repeated by the bass in notes of graver hue. In all that is dainty and lovable he finds hints for his own combinations, and thus is nature ever his resource and always at his service, and to him is not refused. Through his brain, as through the last alembic, is distilled the refined essence of the thought which began with the gods and which they left him to carry out, set apart by them to complete their works. He produces that wondrous thing called the masterpiece, which surpasses in perfection all that they have contrived in what is called nature. 
and the gods stand by and marvel and perceive how far away more beautiful is the Venus of Milos than was their own Eve. For some time past, the unattached writer has become the middleman in this matter of art, and his influence, while it has widened the gulf between the people and the painter, has brought about the most complete misunderstanding as to the aim of the picture. For him, a picture is more or less a hieroglyph or symbol of story. Apart from a few technical terms for the display of which he finds an occasion, the work is considered absolutely from a literary point of view indeed. From what other can he consider it? And in his essays he deals with it as with a novel, a history, or an anecdote. He fails entirely and most naturally to see its excellencies or demerits, artistic and so degrades art, by supposing it a method of bringing about a literary climax. It thus, in his hands, becomes merely a means of perpetuating something further, and its mission is made a secondary one, even as a means is second to an end. The thoughts, emphasized, noble or other, are inevitably attached to the incident, and become more or less noble according to the eloquence or mental quality of the writer who looks the while with disdain upon what he holds as mere execution, a matter belonging, he believes, to the training of the schools and the reward of assiduity, so that, as he goes on with his translation from canvas to paper, the work becomes his own. He finds poetry where he would feel it were he himself transcribing the event, invention in the intricacy of the mise-en-scene, and noble philosophy in some detail of philanthropy, courage, modesty, or virtue suggested to him by the occurrence. All this might be brought before him, and his imagination be appealed to by a very poor picture. Indeed, I might safely say that it generally is. Meanwhile, the painter's poetry is quite lost to him, the amazing invention that shall have put form and color into such perfect harmony that exquisiteness is the result. He is without understanding. The nobility of thought that shall have given the artist dignity to the whole says to him absolutely nothing. So that his praises are published for virtues we shall blush to possess, while the great qualities that distinguish the one work from the thousand that make of the masterpiece the thing of beauty that it is have never been seen at all that this is so we can make sure of by looking back at old reviews upon past exhibitions and reading the flatteries lavished upon men who have since been forgotten altogether but upon whose works the language has been exhausted in rhapsodies that left nothing for the national gallery a curious matter, in its effect upon the judgment of these gentlemen, is the accepted vocabulary of poetic symbolism that helps them by habit in dealing with nature amount into them as synonymous with height, a lake with depth, the ocean with vastness, the sun with glory. So that a picture with a mountain, a lake, and an ocean, however poor in paint, is inevitably lofty, vast, infinite, and glorious on paper. There are those also, somber of mien and wise with the wisdom of books, who frequent museums in burrow and crypts, collecting, comparing, compiling, classifying, contradicting, expert these, for whom a date is an accomplishment, a hallmark success. Careful in scrutiny are they, 
and conscientious of judgment, establishing with due weight unimportant reputations, discovering the picture by the stain on the back, testing the torso by the leg that is missing, filling folios with doubts on the way of that limb, disputations and dictatorial concerning the birthplace of inferior persons, speculating in much writing upon the great worth of bad work true clerks of the collection they mix memoranda with ambition and reducing art to statistics they file the fifteenth century and pigeonhole the antique then the preacher appointed he stands in high places harangues and holds forth sage of the universities learned in many matters and of much experience in all save his subject exhorting denouncing directing filled with wrath and earnestness bringing powers of persuasion and polish of language to prove nothing torn with much teaching having naught to impart impressive important shallow defiant distressed desperate crying out and cutting himself while the gods hear not gentle priests of the philistine withal again he ambles pleasantly from all point and through many volumes escaping scientific assertion babbles of green fields so art has become foolishly confounded with education that all should be equally qualified whereas while polish refinement culture and breeding are in no way arguments for artistic result it is also no reproach to the most finished scholar or greatest gentleman in the land that he be absolutely without eye for painting or ear for music that in his heart he prefer the popular print to the scratch of rembrandt's needle or the songs of the hall to beethoven's c minor symphony let him have but the wit to say so and not feel the admission a proof of inferiority art happens no hovel is safe from it no prince may depend upon it the vastest intelligence cannot bring it about and puny efforts to make it universal end in quaint comedy and coarse farce this is as it should be and all attempts to make it otherwise are due to the eloquence of the ignorant the zeal of the conceited the boundary line is clear far from me to propose to bridge it over that the pestered people be pushed across no i would save them from further fatigue i would come to their relief and would lift from their shoulders this incubus of art why after centuries of freedom from it and indifference to it should it now be thrust upon them by the blind until wearied and puzzled they know no longer how they shall eat or drink how they shall sit or stand or wherewithal they shall clothe themselves without afflicting art but lo there is much talk without triumphantly they cry beware this matter does indeed concern us we also have our part in all true art for remember the one touch of nature that makes the whole world kin true indeed but let not the unwary jauntily suppose that shakespeare herewith hands him his passport to paradise and thus permits him speech among the chosen rather learn that in this very sentence he is condemned to remain without to continue with the common this one chord that vibrates with all this one touch of nature that calls aloud to the response of each that explains the popularity of the bull of paul potter that excuses the price of murillo's conception this one unspoken sympathy that pervades humanity is vulgarity 
vulgarity under whose fascinating influence the many have elbowed the few and the gentle circle of art swarms with the intoxicated mob of mediocrity whose leaders prate in council and call aloud where the gods once spoke in whisper and now from their midst the dilettante stalks abroad the amateur is loosed the voice of the esthete is heard in the land and catastrophe is upon us the meddler beckons the vengeance of the gods and ridicule threatens the fair daughters of the land and there are curious converts to the weird cult in which all instinct for attractiveness all freshness and sparkle all woman's winsomeness is to give way to a strange vocation for the unlovely and this desecration in the name of the graces shall this gaunt ill at ease distressed abashed mixture of movis haunte and desperate assertion call itself artistic and claim cousinship with the artist who delights in the dainty the sharp bright gaiety of beauty no a thousand times no here are no connections of ours we will have nothing to do with them forced to seriousness that emptiness may be hidden they dare not smile while the artist in fullness of heart and head is glad and laughs aloud and is happy in his strength and is merry at the pompous pretension the solemn silliness that surrounds him for art and joy go together with bold openness and high head and heavy hand fearing not and dreading no exposure know then all beautiful women that we are with you pay no heed we pray you to this outcry of the unbecoming this last plea of the plain it concerns you not your own instinct is near the truth your own wit far surer guide the untaught ventures of thick-heeled apollos what will you up and follow the first piper that leads you down petticoat lane there on a sabbath to gather for the week from the dull rags of ages wherewith to bedeck yourselves that beneath your travestied awkwardness we have trouble to find your own dainty selves oh fie is the world then exhausted and must we go back because the thumb of the mountebank jerks the other way costume is not dress and the wearers of wardrobes may not be doctors of taste for by what authority shall these be pretty masters look well and nothing have they invented nothing put together for comeliness sake haphazard from their shoulders hang the garments of the hawker combining in their person the motley of many manners with the medley of the mummer's closet set up as a warning and a finger-post of danger they point to the disastrous effect of art upon the middle classes why this lifting of the brow and deprecation of the present this pathos in reference to the past if art be rare to-day it was seldom heretofore it is false this teaching of decay the master stands in no relation to the moment at which he occurs a monument of isolation hinting at sadness having no part in the progress of his fellow-men he is also no more the product of civilization than is the scientific truth asserted dependent upon the wisdom of a period the assertion itself requires the man to make it the truth was from the beginning so art is limited to the infinite and beginning there cannot progress
a silent indication of its wayward independence from all extraneous advance is in the absolutely unchanged condition and form of implement since the beginning of things the painter has but the same pencil the sculptor the chisel of centuries colors are not more since the heavy hangings of night were first drawn aside and the loveliness of light revealed neither chemist nor engineer can offer new elements of the masterpiece false again the fabled link between the grandeur of art and the glories and virtues of the state for art feeds not upon nations and peoples may be wiped from the face of the earth but art is it is indeed high time that we cast aside the weary weight of responsibility and co-partnership and know that in no way do our virtues minister to its worth in no way do our vices impede its triumph how irksome how hopeless how superhuman the self-imposed task of the nation how sublimely vain the belief that it shall live nobly or art perish let us reassure ourselves that our own option is our virtue art we in no way affect a whimsical goddess and a capricious her strong sense of joy tolerates no dullness and live we never so spotlessly still may she turn her back upon us as from time immemorial she has done upon the swiss in their mountains what more worthy people whose every alpine gap yawns with tradition and is stocked with a noble story yet the perverse and scornful one will none of it and the sons of patriots are left with the clock that turns the mill and the sudden cuckoo with difficulty restrained in its box for this was tell a hero for this did gessler die art the cruel jade cares not and hardens her heart and hides her off to the east to find among the opium-eaters of nankin a favorite with whom she lingers fondly caressing his blue porcelain and painting his coy maidens and marking his plates with her six marks of choice indifferent in her companionship with him to all save the virtue of his refinement he it is who calls her he who holds her and again to the west that her next lover may bring together the gallery at madrid and show to the world how the master towers above all and in their intimacy they revel he and she in this knowledge and he knows the happiness untasted by other mortal she is proud of her comrade and promises that in after years others shall pass that way and understand so in all time does the superb one about for the man worthy her love and art seeks the artist alone where he is there she appears and remains with him loving and fruitful turning never aside in moments of hope deferred of insult and of ribald misunderstanding and when he dies she sadly takes her flight though loitering yet in the land from fond association but refusing to be consoled and so have we the ephemeral influence of the master's memory the afterglow in which are warmed for a while the worker and disciple with the man then and not with the multitude are her intimacies and in the book of her life the names inscribed are few scant indeed the list of those who have helped to write her story of love and beauty from the sunny morning when with her glorious greek relenting she yielded up a secret of repeated line 
as with his hand in hers together they marked in marble the measured rhyme of lovely limb and draperies flowing in unison to the day when she dipped the spaniard's brush in light and air and made his people live within their frame and stand upon their legs that all nobility and sweetness and tenderness and magnificence should be theirs by right ages had gone by and few had been her choice countless indeed the horde of pretenders but she knew them not a teeming seething busy mass whose virtue was industry and whose industry was vice their names go to fill the catalogue of the collection at home of the gallery abroad for the delectation of the bagman and the critic therefore have we cause to be merry and to cast away all care resolve that all is well as it ever was that it is not meet that we should be cried at and urged to take measures enough have we endured of dullness surely are we weary of weeping and our tears have been cozened from us falsely for they have called out woe when there was no grief and alas where all is fair we have then but to wait until with the mark of the gods upon him there come among us again the chosen who shall continue what has gone before satisfied that even were he never to appear the story of the beautiful is already complete hewn in the marbles of the parthenon embroidered with the birds upon the fan of hokusai at the foot of fusiyama end of mr whistler's ten o'clock lecture by james abbott mcneil whistler